most entrepreneurs regret their sale. It's approximately 75% according to a study done by Vistage. And what I counsel clients is that they need to make sure when they're exiting their company that the future they're creating for themselves is more exciting and rewarding than the future that they have if they continue to own the business. Yes. I think most entrepreneurs are value creators. And if we wake up one morning and we don't create value in the world, we start to just, you know, feel out of sorts. And that's really where that regret stems from. It has nothing to do with money. It really has to do with our ability to solve problems, create opportunities, and feel valued. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Noah Rosenfarb counsels entrepreneurs that are looking for ways to enhance their wealth while working less, living more, and enjoying financial abundance. 20 plus years of real estate investment experience has taught him that fractional ownership in large assets is an excellent tool to create multiple passive income streams. He's worked through all kinds of syndications, 32 acquisitions, built a portfolio of 3,500 plus apartment buildings and 500,000 square feet of office space and retail shopping centers. He's also a third generation CPA and has been studying the tax code his whole life. I don't think there are many people who can say that, to find ways, legal ways to reduce or eliminate taxes, which is a guaranteed way to increase cash flow. The rest of his bio is in the show notes. You can check him out. And obviously, you're going to get to know him here soon. Noah Rosenfob, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on. And uh, listen, saving taxes and, uh, you know, and finding ways to do deals uh, and save taxes that'll increase, uh, you know, cash flow and investable assets and all that kind of stuff is something that a lot of our listeners are definitely uh, interested in. So um, I'm excited to have you on. Before we talk more about some of those strategies and your experience with those kind of deals, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be when you grow up? Because for a lot of people, you know, what they do now is very different from what they wanted to be as a kid. But you were a third generation, you know, CPA studying the tax code when you were a kid. So I don't know, maybe this is what you always wanted to be. You tell me. That's interesting. I grew up with a single mom who'd often have three jobs, but still struggled to put food on the table. And when I'd spend the weekends with my dad, I noticed we could order dessert. And then sometimes (laughs) we'd be able to go to the movies after we went bowling. And so from a young kid, I realized that uh, rich or poor, it's nice to have money. And I looked at my dad and I looked at the lifestyle he was able to create for himself through entrepreneurship and uh, owning an independent CPA firm. And I thought, you know what, let me be like him. I want to be a CPA and help other people with their money. So that was my dream when I was young. I love it. I love it. And what was the first deal of any type, whether it was a small little thing when you were a little kid or when you were older, you know, the first deal of any type that comes to memory? 
So when I was in middle school, I started selling food when I was about nine. But then when I was in middle school, the administrator came to us, the school principal, and he said, look, I really don't like you selling stuff before and after school. It's a little disruptive while you're selling it during the school. And we used to sell blow pops and, you know, sometimes the band would try and raise money and we'd undercut them on the price. (laughs) So the principal said, you know, why don't you open a school store? And it was a great experience for me and my friend, Chad. We were able to buy the inventory and manage the school store. They gave us a couple hundred dollars to fill it up. And then every day before and after school, we'd work in that school store and, and sell supplies to our friends. And I didn't get a chance to make any money from it, but I got the great experience of having to manage inventory, manage cash flow, figure out what people are going to want and uh, make sure I had the right product mix. I love that. So what a great experience as a young kid. And what, and what a positive, you know, instead of just shutting you down, they found the positive way to channel that energy. I got to give credit to the, uh, to the school there. Yeah, it was awesome. But, you know, the passion of entrepreneurship has been in me since I'm young. I've always had that drive and I keep finding new ways to express my creativity through business. All right. So yeah, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, more of what you do now. And, and because you have the CPA background, you have the tax expertise, you, you do some of that work, but you know, it's expanded beyond that, right? More into, you know, some wealth management and, and also real estate investment and syndication, all that stuff. Give us an idea of the scope of what you do for clients and, and been involved in yourself. Yeah. So I started in the CPA business and I grew and expanded primarily through testifying in divorce court but I really didn't love it. I didn't like making more money when people were more miserable. So, you know, I'd resolve cases quickly and then I'd get chastised because we weren't highly profitable because (laughs) I resolved the case. So, you know, litigation just wasn't a right fit for me. And I ended up opening a family office for affluent divorced women. And I took the same types of clients that I had been helping, but instead now I started managing their money and paying their bills and handling their taxes. And I ended up selling that company back in 2012 after I decided to move to South Florida, but I still really liked that family office business. And along with some private equity investments that I had made along the way, it came time for me to, in some way, have my own family office. So I just built what I needed for myself. And then I brought other entrepreneurs in along with me. And now we serve affluent, successful entrepreneurs, typically that have a 20 to $100 million net worth. And we're doing everything for them. Their estate planning, their investment management, their you know, bill pay if they need it, their tax strategy, insurance, investments, you know, you name it, we're right by their side. And oftentimes their most valuable asset is their company. And we're well equipped to help them increase the value of that business, position it for a future sale, make sure that they pay as little in taxes as possible, and then recreate the income that they once had through passive investments that are going to produce consistent, predictable monthly cash flow. It's interesting to me, and there's so many things out of even just that little share that come to my mind. One is sometimes when people are looking to sell of a business, they do have a concern about, right? Because the business, if it's really as value that's sellable, usually is also throwing off some nice cash flow for them. Yet that ability to replace that cash flow, you know, even though they may have large assets, nobody likes to think they're drawing down on them ideally, right? So they want to replace that cash flow. But also, you know, there's a psychological part of it, right? You know, and what do you see? I'm curious because I've had different people with different views on the show. And, you know, I, I think everybody acknowledges it's just depends on what works for different people where, you know, they've said some people regret selling their businesses, right? They, they work around a lot of money. They're set for life. But, you know, they don't have that thing that they wake up for every day and that they're still building, you know, anymore. And then other people do get into sort of, you know, what some of the stuff that you did in terms of like investing in other people's companies and do really well with that and are happy with it. And other people say, well, why should I invest in other people's company? I might as well keep running mine. Uh, you know, what do you see with your clients around that whole conversation? 
so, you know, most entrepreneurs regret their sale. It's approximately 75% according to a study done by Vistage. And what I counsel clients is that they need to make sure when they're exiting their company that the future they're creating for themselves is more exciting and rewarding than the future that they have if they continue to own the business. Yes. I think most entrepreneurs are value creators. And if we wake up one morning and we don't create value in the world, we start to just, you know, feel out of sorts. And that's really where that regret stems from. It has nothing to do with money. It really has to do with our ability to solve problems, create opportunities, and feel valued. Yeah, that's totally right. And there are a lot of ways people can do that. Sometimes people do get that through investing in other people's business. business. Sometimes they get it through getting active in causes and charities they care about. You know, uh, it's, it's, you know, some people will become a consultant or advisor. You know, there's a lot of ways people can do that. But most of the, I agree with you, most of the ones that don't do it well haven't really created that vision for themselves post, you know, post-sale. Maybe they're tired. Maybe there's a, and they want out. Maybe there's just a huge economic opportunity that seems so tempting, but they haven't thought past it. Yeah. So what we do oftentimes when we onboard new clients and we help them build out their 10-year vision and make sure that we know where it is that they want to go, a lot of times if there's going to be an exit from their current business where they're either going to give up controlling ownership or maybe the whole entire thing, we're looking at what are you going to do next? And we have a program called an ideal week where we start to map out what does that ideal week look like in you know, CEO post-operational world. How are you spending your time? You know, you could play golf three days a week. You could ski in Vail. You could spend your summers in the Hamptons. You could spend your winters in Palm Beach. I mean, all of that is great and fun, but really, how do you want to spend your time when you're there? What are the things you'd like to be doing? Who are the people you want to spend more time with? Who are the people you want to spend less time with? And, you know, what are the things you'd like to start doing? And what are the things you'd like to stop doing? Those are really the questions that we help entrepreneurs focus on when they're going through that transition. Love it. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because something else you also mentioned is that you did some angel or VC investing, you know, prior to starting this latest business. Curious about your experience with that, lessons learned. There'll be an episode that's launching, you know, a couple of weeks before yours with Nick Adams, who's, who's, who's a VC. And we talked about that world specifically from his point of view. Curious about your experiences as an investor and during that stretch when you were doing it. Yeah, so I've had significant minority investments in operating businesses. And then I've also run a private equity fund where we acquired 100% of portfolio companies. And then now we've transitioned to acquiring royalties in online businesses through a new company that I control called uh, Fiji Royalty, F-I-G-I Royalty. .com and that company we're actually in the midst of taking public, which is really exciting. But what I would say is I learned two things that have influenced where I'm headed. One is that I don't like investing my own capital if it's just my own. I've realized that because I have the capacity, talent, and acumen to invest other people's capital, that it's not as efficient for me to make investments of just my own money. I'm better off making a larger investment and bringing people along with me. And then in addition, I get the benefit of making money on their money when we profit. So there's like this double bonus for me. The second thing I've realized is that I like cash flow. And I've just value cash flow so significantly that I really shy away from investments that aren't going to produce immediate or have a high probability of producing consistent long-term cash flow after a short time frame. So, so the uh, that next Instagram or Facebook tech company that you know hasn't figured out a monetization strategy but is supposedly going to be have huge enterprise value and be a unicorn down the line is not your uh, ideal investment for you. Not really. I saw a great 
Jeff Hoffman, who's one of the founders of Priceline. He speaks at some EO functions. Just to interrupt you real quick, uh, Jeff Hoffman was the first, so September 11th, National Speakers Association, where I happen to be uh, the president. Now, this is going to launch, actually, this will have launched, uh, this episode's coming out after that, but he's my first speaker. At well, National Speakers Association, September 11th, uh, New York chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, you know, Jeff's a brilliant guy. And one of the things he spoke about that really impacted me was how he utilizes venture capital investing and angel investing in lieu of philanthropy to support ideas that could become self-sustaining yes. and impact the world in a positive way. And in lieu of getting a charitable deduction tax benefit, you can actually make money and it would you know, become a virtuous cycle where you could continue to invest those proceeds in other companies that could help improve the world. And if you lose the money, then you, know, you tried and, and you get the write-off. So it's about the same thing. And so I ended up applying that in South Florida. You know, I really like there where I live the tech community is still trying to build its way into, you know, becoming a real fixture the way that Austin has created their own footprint in technology. And so I've started supporting a venture capital firm where I'll invest a relatively small amount of money in every deal that they find that are Florida-based venture capital worthy companies. And really I'm doing it to support our ecosystem and just make sure that people know they could have a company in South Florida that could get venture funding. And you don't have to be in Silicon Valley. You don't have to be in Austin. You don't have to be in New York. You could be right here in sunny South Florida, where there's a great cost of labor, great lifestyle, great cost of living, and no state income taxes. Love it. So Doug, we were mentioning in your bio some things about real estate syndication investments. Uh, that's oh, Actually, before I go there, I just realized there's something else I want to raise because one of the things I try to do with and highlight on this podcast is to expand people's view of what kind of deals are available out there. Because sometimes people, you know, think about deals are just, are just venture capital or big M&A and they think, oh, you know, that's all there is. But there's, you know, there's licensing deals and affiliate deals and sponsorship deals and, and joint ventures and strategic alliances. And you mentioned something about this fund where you guys are acquiring royalty, you know, revenue, you know, that's the type of deal that people might've heard less about. I'm curious you know, if you'd spend a few minutes on that before I move to the real estate side. Sure. So we've pioneered a new structure for this very small niche of the industry that exists right now, which are online businesses. So content businesses, platforms, SaaS companies, even e-commerce businesses, companies that typically are very fixed cost light. So everything's variable cost. You know, we've seen them become pandemic proof in the sense that there wasn't a physical office that people went to from nine to five from Monday through Friday. So when they couldn't go at any place in particular, it didn't really impact their company. But we find these little niche businesses that are often run by a lifestyle entrepreneur who's making 150000 a year to maybe a couple million a year with very few employees. And like I said, very light overhead and will invest in their business in exchange for a percentage of their revenue. Mm -hmm. So we're not their business partner. If they want to fly first class to a conference, if they want to order a $300 bottle of champagne and you know take a bunch of people out for a fancy party, none of that bothers us because we're just getting paid off the top line. Right, off top and line. So, so you don't care what the expenses are. Yep. We don't care about the, do all the tax, you know, expensing that they want, you know, whatever, however they want to run the business, that's up to them. We're just getting a paid a percentage of revenue. And we found that in these companies, which are typically trading it sometimes two to three times earnings, the entrepreneur who's, you know, buying that company, he's expecting to get, if he paid cash, 50% or 33% returns if he has no growth, we can come in and provide them with cash to 
close and do an acquisition. And if they have no growth on that company, we'll get 20 to 30% returns on our money. And it's still a lower cost of capital to him than putting in more equity. So we're providing this very highly leveraged finance transaction, but through a royalty structure. So there's no debt, there's no default risk on the part of the counterparty so that they don't owe us the money if the business declines. And if they grow their company, we structure it so that our percentage of revenue goes down. So as they grow the business, more of those rewards go into their pocket, as opposed to if we were a minority partner, we'd want a pro rata piece of every dollar. Right, right. Yeah, so it's interesting, uh, listeners, if you think about it, right, it's not a loan, it's not an equity investment. You don't have all the uh, things with having minority uh, ownership and owners and you know, what happens if somebody wants to leave and all that kind of stuff, but it is, it's a contractual right to receive a percentage of top line revenue. It doesn't affect the expense decisions. And then is there, and, and by the way, stop me if there's anything you don't want to share about your structure, right? But what happens if the company does exit at some point? With, is there a buyout of the, uh, of the revenue participation interest? Yeah, so each contract's negotiated directly with our counterparty, but typically we want to have a few things in it. One is the right of first refusal. So if yep. we feel like they're selling and it's not an arm's length transaction, we have the opportunity to buy at that price. The second is that if they want to get us out of the deal, there's always a way that they could buy us out. It's typically going to be around twice our initial investment, assuming we've hit our hurdle returns, which are, like I mentioned, in that 20 to 30% range. Yeah, I love it. It's a great structure. And it's funny because I've seen it, you know, you've mentioned it in the area of these online SaaS companies, you know, the the list of companies you talked about. I do a lot in that space, but I also do a lot in financial services and uh, in the... uh, in the investment advisory space, which is actually a space that you're in, there's a service platform provider that we do a lot of business with, Dynasty Financial Services, and they have a similar model where they have a revenue participation interest vehicle that they do with some of their platform firms to provide, again, some liquidity and funding for them without taking an equity interest. uh, And it's also off the top line. So, you know, it's a similar vehicle there used in the financial services space. So, you know, one of the reasons sort of hit my highlight, it's something that a lot of people don't think about in a way to structure, uh, you know, a deal without giving away equity or having your ability to make expense decisions uh, be effective. I love it. I'd add one other thing on top of it. So this company I mentioned, we're already SEC reporting. We're just going through our last round of financing and we'll list those shares that we sell on the public markets. But what's unique about SEC reporting is when you have minority equity, you basically have different reporting requirements and different compliance requirements than when you have a royalty because a royalty is not a security. So part of the reason to structure these royalty transactions the way we did is that we we don't actually own any securities. We're not acquiring securities. And eventually, if we want to sell any of these royalties, we're not selling securities. Yeah, love it. Great stuff. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our conversations, community, and cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. Okay, so let's hit the real estate investment and syndication, and then I want to start moving to some of the uh, 
some of the tax expertise that you bring, including uh, I know you're doing a lot that's anticipating what might happen depending upon uh, who wins the election and uh, you know who's more likely to raise taxes and all that kind of stuff. But talk to me about some of the real estate syndication you've been involved in and that you get clients involved in. And, sure. Yeah. yeah I started 20 years ago. My wife and I bought a two-family home when we got engaged. We lived in half and rented half and we pulled the equity out of that house to buy another two-family and then we did that again. And Lo and behold, you know, we were landlords and I found out that my time was better spent running my business, not managing these tenants. So we exited <laughs> our portfolio. We moved to South Florida back in 2011 and we started investing in large scale projects where we'd put in, you know, 50 grand, 100 grand, 200 grand into an individual syndicated retail deal. And then I started bringing my clients along with me, you know, buying office buildings and apartment complexes and retail shopping centers. And then I started a fund. So we acquired about $25 million worth of equity in different buildings. And then when that fund ran out, we started syndicating individual deals again. And at this point in the cycle, we've pretty much exclusively focused on value-add workforce housing that was built in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. And we just acquired 475 units last week with you know three and a half million of equity. We control a thirty million dollar you know 475 unit apartment complex because we highly leverage it. We go in and do our value improvement plan. Then we can refinance and get our cash out, still own the asset, and still have cash flow. So we've done that. We call that our infinite return model. We've been executing on that since about 2014 when we started buying apartment complexes that were a little bit run down, places you certainly wouldn't want your kids to live in. We go in, we renovate them, we increase rents, and then we get our money back out through a refi and we still get to own the asset and appreciate the cash flow. And eventually, if we do want to liquidate at some point in time, we can. Ideally, our plan is to own them forever. Yeah. So let's talk about this a little bit. I want to delve into a couple of things on that because I've done some of that in my past. And there was a time when I was doing stuff deal by deal. And then we, we sort of found out that at least, you know, with, with some of the deals that were really good, because a lot of the deals that are really good are off market, right? You know, they're not being shot by a broker, but you get, you know, and sometimes you have to act quickly on them. And I remember after losing a couple of deal opportunities, because it took us a little longer to raise the capital and, you know, then the deal to hang around, we put together our first fund with the idea of having, you know, powder available, right? And, you know, we had authority to act and all that kind of stuff. And there are, you know, some good advantages of that, you know, but of course, there are advantages, disadvantages to everything. So uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the advantages of having a fund versus doing it deal to deal and then vice versa, the advantages of doing Yeah, sure. We were doing them deal by deal. Then we had a fund. Now I'm back to deal by deal. Part of that is the benefit of the fund is, as you mentioned, you've got the authority to write a check without any concerns about making sure the check's going to clear. That's a huge advantage as a sponsor. The other advantage for the investor is that on a portfolio basis, you earn your fees. So, you know, in my case, we were getting 20% of the performance right. on the portfolio. So if I had nine winners and one loser, the one loser would reduce my fees on the winner. When you syndicate deal by deal, it's very different. Your fees just come out every deal. So from a client's perspective, sometimes the funds have an advantage because of that offset. And then also for tax reporting purposes, sometimes a fund could be simpler. What I didn't like about the fund structure coming into this part of the cycle, my fund was expended at the end of 2018. And, you know, although COVID wasn't here, although the economy was as hot as ever, it just didn't feel like the right time for me to ask people to commit capital because mm -hmm. I didn't want pressure. Asset prices just felt like they were getting really high and I didn't want the pressure to deploy the capital. I didn't want my clients 
to feel like they had to reserve that cash for the day that I called them and said I had a deal. And then what I realized was that because I have a great group of people that have been investing with me for over a decade, you know, if I call them and I say, I've got a deal, they all want in. And now we send out one email, we get oversubscribed within a few hours and the fundraising has been really simple. A lot of times I'll have to bring, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars more to a closing and wait for people to shuffle money around, but I'll cover them for the week or two that they need it. And so it hasn't really been a problem for us yet. We're sourcing all these deals off market because again, I think that is the way that most of the best deals get done is, is through your reputation. So sure. we've got a good reputation and that allows us the opportunity to get deals that, you know, even though they're marketed off market, it's still marketed. It's just not sure. an auction. Sure. Uh, a lot of times when the auction ends, actually this property we just acquired that I mentioned, the auction ended, the ending price was around 32 million. The buyer couldn't get the financing once COVID hit. And then the seller went to his broker and said, you know, what do we do now? And they said, well, let's, you know, go to Noah and his group and let's bring them in. And we were able to acquire it for 29.9 million. The seller liked the financing that we were getting, the way that we operate the business. And they said, you know what, why don't we just finance it for you? They give us 90% seller financing with zero interest for six months. So they let us take over the property 60 days before closing. We were able to increase our NOI by $80,000 before we even closed. So you know, a couple of things that you could do really well when you execute is you get a better chance to source deals and close them in a, an efficient way. And one of the things that our partner in Atlanta has done a great job of with their reputation is they haven't retraded any deals. So they've done 16 acquisitions in the last two years. They haven't retraded a single deal. And so that yeah. builds a reputation that, you know what, you find out that there's some roof damage over here or one of the vacant units needs some plumbing work. You know, we're not going to nickel and dime. We're just going to close at the price we agree on. And by paying an extra 50 or 100 grand on a couple of these deals, by not really you know, negotiating as hard as we can, we're getting great off-market deal flow because every broker wants us to be their buyer. Yeah, that totally makes sense. That's the, you know, the smarter, longer-term view. That's way more valuable than the closing discounts you could negotiate on any given deal, no question. All right, one last question on this, and I want to move to the tax side. Whether it's on a deal-by-deal basis or on a syndicated basis, dealing with other people's money. Now, you deal with other people's money in a number of ways, right? Because you manage money, right? And then also, you know, the investment side. Not everybody's cut out for that. When you're responsible for other people's money, it's, it's a whole different ballgame than, when, you know, when it's your own. And sure, when things are going, going well, it's great. But even in the best of the smartest people in the best of times, whatever, you know, unless you're the exception of had at least a deal that hasn't worked out as they suspected or the economy turns or they got a hold longer or whatever, you know, and that creates, a, there's a whole different sort of skill set and mentality and, and even constitution of people who are willing to deal with other people's money. Thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I think part of it is that I always share that I would never do with someone else's money what I wouldn't do with mine, yes. but there's certain things I'll do with my money that I wouldn't do with someone else's. And I think having that in mind, always knowing that I want to treat someone else's money better than I treat my own is part of my own value system and kind of growing up in that accounting mindset. I think accountants are the most trusted advisors for a reason. We tend to be conservative by nature. We tend to think about the numbers. We're logical, not emotional. So all the things that come from my training and background, and then also kind of the DNA of being this third generation CPA, I think put me in a good position to manage other people's capital. And then 
On top of that, I've really had a love and passion for becoming wealthy. As I mentioned in the beginning, you know, just my origin story and where I came from. And I just knew I wanted to be wealthy. And I knew that that was a goal that I had. And, and so I've been studying how to make money since I'm a little kid. You know, I read books about money when I was nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, that most people weren't reading, you know, until they were in the 30s. So I've just been able to take everything I've learned and apply it to my clients because it's where I'm passionate and allows my clients who tend to be more visionary type entrepreneurs where they can lead and grow their successful company and know that they've got someone that's, you know, got their back, watching out for everything that's going on in their financial life, creating complex structures that save them lots of money, but they don't have to deal with the details. And that's where I just find there's a lot of value that I'm creating and it makes me feel good. Got it. Totally got it. All right. So let's talk a little bit about taxes. Obviously, we've got a big election coming up and, you know, separate and apart from anybody's politics and whether we judge it good or bad, tax policy is uh, likely to be pretty much definitely going to be very different under, you know, uh, one result versus another. Democrats have clearly talked about, you know, having taxes go up and, and, and some people may be very in favor of that, some people against it. That's not the topic. The topic is planning for it, right? whichever way. So talk to me a little bit. I know you've been, you've been talking a lot about, you know, planning for the eventuality of, especially, I guess, if there's a change in tax policy, where we are now, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I just think it's inevitable that tax rates are going to go up on people that make a lot of money, whether it's this next administration or the one after the one after that, somebody's going to need to balance our budget at some point in the future, or at least reduce our deficit. And, you know, we've just printed about $6 trillion to help stimulate our economy and keep us off the brink of failure. Our debt keeps climbing. You know, we've got massive mathematical issues as one of the candidates talked about. And so my job in protecting entrepreneurs is to say, look, let's, regardless of who is running our country, let's find ways that we could avoid taxes. Because if we could avoid the tax, then it doesn't matter what the rate is. And one of the strategies that I implemented a few years ago for my family, I somewhat invented with another tax expert, and we've been applying it with our clients, is to take advantage of a a unique rule called a ROBS plan. I can describe what that is, but then we also do a mashup. And a lot of ideas that we come up with our mashups, like when peanut butter and chocolate were walking down the street and they made that Reese's, (laughs) that's what we look at with some of these tax strategies. We take a good idea and another good idea, we mash them together and we come up with a great idea. So one great idea is this Rob's plan. And then the other is Puerto Rico, which is a commonwealth, has its own tax system. And what that means is that when you're a Puerto Rico resident or you run a Puerto Rico company, you're subject to Puerto Rico taxes, but there's no state tax and there's no federal tax. There's just Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico, because in the 80s, they had a manufacturing tax incentive that drew about 10 or 15,000 manufacturing jobs in pharmaceuticals down to the island through some tax codes, they realized, wow, this is really powerful. It brought a ton of jobs here. And then some administration came in and they said, you know what, let's get rid of this tax benefit for pharmaceutical companies. They don't need it. They make plenty of money. They got rid of the law. All the pharmaceutical companies went away. So somebody new came in and they said, you know what, let's try and get wealthy retirees to come retire here instead of Florida. 
And let's also try and get some entrepreneurs to open their company here and be a place that welcomes entrepreneurship. And so they came up with two specific tax codes, one called Act 20, one called Act 22. They've now been renamed Act 60. And if you're willing to retire there, you pay no capital gains tax, no dividend or income tax. And so pretty amazing if you want to retire there. In my case, that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I'm raising my family in South Florida. I'm really happy here. But I did like the idea of opening a business there. And when Puerto Rico offered a 4% corporate tax rate, I thought, man, that's, that's just too attractive to pass up. So I combined these two things, the Rob's plan, which allows you to own a business inside of a 401k plan, and the Act 20 decree, where I pay a 4% corporate tax rate. And so through the magic of planning, I own a business in Puerto Rico through my Roth 401k plan that has a 4% corporate tax rate. So if we have a million dollars of income in Puerto Rico, we pay 40 grand in tax and $960,000 goes into my Roth 401k tax-free because the owner is a Roth 401k plan, just like any stock that is owned by a 401k plan, there's no tax on dividends. And then that money goes in my plan and I can invest it in real estate, I can invest it in businesses, I can invest it in stocks and bonds, and I'll pay no tax on any of the gains for the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah, it's really interesting what's happening with Puerto Rico. You and I in a off-air conversation that, you know, there are a bunch of folks in the personal growth space and then the online marketing space who I know have moved down there in the Dorado area. And, uh, you know, so there's a few different programs for them. You know, there's advantages of living there. But what was interesting to me about you know, talking to you was because uh, I was aware of that portion of it, but I was less aware of this ability not to be a resident in Puerto Rico and put a company there. Yeah. It took me about two and a half years to figure out the structure. But once I did, it really powerful, not just for my own family, but for the families that we counsel that we've helped them set up this structure for their family as well. So Noah, listen, you, you know, you're sounds like a born deal maker, uh, certainly a born entrepreneur and, and, you know, and it sounds like a deal maker and, and I feel the same way about myself and I'm a believer that there are born entrepreneurs and deal makers and then there are people who will never be, but then there are also some people who aren't necessarily born that way, but whether it's situational, whether it's evolutionary, whether whatever, they get there, right? And, and they make that choice. And, and I don't have any judgment about anybody in the three categories. There are people who, you know, it's just, it's just self-awareness, right? You know, there are people who for someone else for the rest of their lives, they don't have the interest, the skill set, the, you know, drive or whatever it is. And they may be phenomenal. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this all the time. There are a lot of people who would be like a phenomenal number four person in a company and do way better for themselves and for the company than they would as, as an entrepreneur, right? So, you know, it's, uh, we just have to know ourselves. But what is your thought about, you know, what has somebody, you, so anybody, you know, be like, I think deal making is a mentality. It's a shift. It's a paradigm shift for some to even be thinking about, hey, how do I come up with these deals and structures and whatever? And I know some of it's your training, but there's also a mindset piece of it. I'd love to, you know, you to talk about, at least I feel there's, a mind, there's always a mindset piece of it. Yeah. I have a list of 26 actions for abundance that I created because, you know, our advice is geared to the half percent you know, that means 99 and a half percent of the people don't really warrant the type of advice that we provide. And I wanted to come up with a tool that they could use to help build their own credentials and experience and skill set, and of course, their wealth to end up getting there. So I kind of categorize that, but I think it starts with learning. And I find that people are willing to share their knowledge 
in an unbelievable way. You know, you're taking time out of your schedule to put this podcast together. What a great gift you're giving to the community that listens. And then, you know, you take someone like Ray Dalio, you know, multi-billionaire who's run one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. He wrote this massive, you know, thousand page book on principles. And here he is sharing it with me for $25, you know? So if you're looking for ways to get ahead, if you're looking for ways to create an edge, there are people that have spent their lifetime thinking about one narrow thing and they'll share it with you in a book that costs 20 bucks. And if you invest six hours or 20 hours reading that book, you're going to get so much value. And I've just found that, you know, as a lifetime of being a real heavy learner, someone that reads 50 books a year, I just get a ton of value from consuming other people's knowledge. I think that's a huge help in shifting, you know, that mindset. You know, and the other thing for me, you know, we talked about EO you know, a little bit, you know, entrepreneurial organization, other organizations where, you know, you mentioned Vistage uh, early in, in the podcast, you know, organizations where there are like-minded individuals who have that same sort of entrepreneurial spirit and deal-making spirit and, you know, whatever, putting yourselves in those environment. And, you know, I love the concept that EO is a, has a peer-to-peer learning. It's why I was involved as a member for so many years. I've taken a little time off, but I'm likely to come back, but you know, it's, it's that peer to peer learning opportunity. That's amazing. Yeah. I love being a member of uh, EO and YPO. And I used to be a Vistage speaker and my dad was a Vistage member for a long time. And I used to get his audio tapes from all the teachers that came through and taught for half a day. And I would, you know, listen to them back on tape uh, when I was first getting, starting my career. So if you have a thirst for learning, make sure to satisfy it. And that'll certainly help get you on your way to being a better deal maker. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, so before I ask you my final question, Noah, so much value here. I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know more. What's the best place for them to find out more about you? Uh, you could go to our primary website, freedomfamilyoffice.com. You could register there for tax tips and eBooks and a bunch of resources that we have. And you'll of course get on our email list and we'll send you any information that we're promoting for you know education, typically around how to save money, grow your wealth, avoid taxes and have a great, healthy family life as well. Love it. Love it. So my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal, which is freedom. And for me, freedom is everything from freedom from oppression for all peoples in the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and haven't worked for somebody in 30 something years, uh, you know, what I want to do when I want to do it. But freedom means different things to different people. And I'm always curious about, so what does freedom mean to you? How does it impact your life, your business, how you advise clients, you know, uh, how you do deals? Yeah. So freedom is the name of our company and it's been the name of all the businesses that we do and and all the deals that we do. They're all freedom deals. Mm -hmm. And it's because freedom to me represents choice. And, you know, going back to growing up, I saw the choices that my mom had and the choices that my dad had. And I just knew that my dad's choices were so much more free than my mom's. And I wanted that freedom for myself. And the freedom of choice comes from a certain level of financial security for sure, but it also comes from a mindset and a willingness to understand what your priorities are and make choices that are aligned with them. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's funny. I was thinking that, you know, you keep talking about the, the experience you had with your mom and with your dad. You know, it reminds me of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? Robert Kiyosaki, who always yep. had, had the benefit of that contrast to show him what he wanted over what, you know, was not as exciting, you know, to him in circumstance. Well, listen, I so appreciate having you on the show. You brought, I mean, so many different topics we covered just in, you know, in 40 minutes of different types of deals, investing, tax strategy, and that kind of stuff. I really appreciate having you on, though. You brought a lot of value. 
I appreciate you having me on and asking me great questions and uh, the opportunity to share with your audience. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.